This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, but kind of overshadowed by political developments in Alberta is a very significant ruling today from Alberta's Court of Appeal. And this concerns the impaired driving legislation brought in under Premier Allison Redford. Now, this had two components, as you may recall. Uh, part of it dealt with a new threshold of 0.05% blood alcohol content uh, and a way for law enforcement to use some uh, administrative penalties. Uh, basically, roadside justice, as some called it, where you know you you could uh, have your license suspended immediately if you were found to be a point zero five. Now, there was another side of it though, dealing with those who were criminally charged with being over point zero eight, which of course is the criminal code th- uh, criminal code threshold. And this also applies, by the way, to those charged with refusing to provide a breast sample. But under the Alberta legislation, if you were criminally charged, you would automatically lose your license until your case was resolved. Now, for people intending to go to trial, that could be months, maybe even a year or more. And so there were a couple of problems pointed out, I think, regarding this. That this was preemptive punishment for those who hadn't been convicted of anything. And that there was a built-in incentive, basically. There was pressure from the state to plead guilty. That you could plead guilty, get this all done with, Or you could let this drag on for months, have your luck in court, and in the meantime, have to deal with this license suspension. So for those reasons, this was challenged in court on a constitutional basis. And uh, in a decision today, the Court of Appeal has ruled that the provisions in this legislation do violate the charter rights of those accused, not yet found guilty of, impaired driving. Well, joining us to talk more about this case uh, as a lawyer representing those challenging the law, Nathan Whitling, uh, as a defense attorney based in Edmonton. Nathan, appreciate your time here today. Thanks for having me. All right, so very significant ruling, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, you know, there's there's still a further right of appeal, of course, or at least a right to seek leave to appeal. But uh, uh, I'm reasonably confident that the majority's decision was correct, and I hope that uh, if it is appealed, the Supreme Court will affirm it. Right. So the next step would be the Supreme Court of Canada, right? Well, of course, that's not up to me, but there is uh, a right on the part of the province of Alberta to seek leave to the Supreme Court if they wish. And uh, given that a law has been struck down and given that there is a dissent by one of the judges, they would have a pretty strong leave application. Okay. So what was the basis of this challenge then? Uh, you know, the bottom line is that if someone is charged with impaired driving, the statistics indicate that maybe 22% of them, based on the government statistics, will eventually be found not guilty. But even those people uh, who will not be convicted of the offense are pressured into pleading guilty by this law. Because the way the law worked was it said, if you plead guilty quickly the suspension is going to be pretty short. It's going to end quite quickly, and before long you can get an interlock uh, device in your car and you can continue to drive. But if you have the temerity to plead not guilty and maintain your innocence and go to trial, then you're going to have the suspension dragging on for at least you know eight, nine months till you can get a trial date and, and sometimes even longer. So the, the And that was the purpose of the law. I mean, the Court of Appeal recognized from these policy documents that we filed that the idea from the beginning was to use this suspension to coerce people into pleading guilty early so that the province wouldn't have to pay so much for all these expensive uh, criminal trials. And so that's why it violated the charter. 
Um, uh, you know, the downside from my perspective, at least, is that uh, the court decided to stay the the declaration of invalidity for a year. So in other words, the law continues to remain in effect for a full year. Uh, and within that time, the, the province may appeal or they may just write a new law. Well, that would be interesting. So there's the option to, to change the law. What would need to change then to, to bring it in line with this, this court ruling? Well, I mean, frankly, it's an easy fix. I mean, in order to fix this law, basically all they would have to do is return to the previous version of the law. And what the previous version said was that these suspensions can last for a fixed term. So it's going to be three months if no one is hurt. It'll be six months if someone is hurt as a result of the impaired driving. And then if a person goes to trial or if they are found not guilty or if they just plead guilty, it's not going to affect the provincial suspension. So as long as a provincial suspension runs independently of the criminal prosecution, then it's going to be constitutionally valid. And that's what the Court of Appeal had said with respect to the old law. Uh, if they just bring that old law back, then that's going to solve the problem. And it seems to me there's at least some chance they might just take that easy route. Well, that's interesting, because if it's a fixed period, it seems we, we would still have the issue, though, of people who are accused of a crime but not convicted still being punished. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But the fact is, you know, the reality is that both the Supreme Court of Canada and the Alberta Court of Appeal have ruled on those types of suspensions and said they're just fine. And so, uh, you know, and I don't see those courts going back right. on those decisions. So, uh, you know, I, the, there were shades of that in, in today's decision. The court said, well, even with those suspensions, maybe there's a problem. But but the fact is that um, when you've got a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada that says those types of decisions are valid, you know, it's needless to say, it's pretty challenged, to, pretty difficult to challenge them and suggest that they're invalid. Well, and this can go well beyond that. I mean, what, what's typical then for somebody who's facing one of these criminal charges to actually get to trial? What, how long a timeline are people looking at? You know, one of the one of the main problems with our justice system these days that keeps arising in all kinds of different context is that the, the courts are so backlogged and they're so overworked that the delays to get to trial are, are just getting uh, to be preposterous. So if someone has a relatively simple impaired driving trial to run, uh, you know, they're very, very fortunate if they can get a trial within eight or nine months. And, you know, that's just too long. And uh, and that's the whole problem. So So we're talking about a suspension that you know, perhaps should last for three months, perhaps for six months if someone's hurt, and it's lasting for eight, nine, ten months or longer, just because someone had the audacity to plead not guilty and uh, and uh, exercise their right to a fair trial, and and it's that discouragement from from uh, going to trial that renders the current law unconstitutional. It's interesting because I think when people look at impaired driving, we almost look at it a little differently, that uh, anyone who, who is acquitted is somehow getting off on a technicality that if they've got you blowing over, or the perception that you blew over, then that's it. You're, you're convicted. You're guilty. So why, why, why waste time with a trial? I think that's, that's how some people look at this issue. What, what, what do they miss, though, in looking at it that way? Well, I mean, I think all I can say is it's true that, you know, the majority of people who are charged with impaired driving are eventually found guilty. And the statistics that the government itself relied upon when it enacted this law was about 78% of people who are actually charged are actually found guilty. And then there's about 22% of people 
who are found not guilty. And some of those people um, have what you might call technical defenses. I don't think they're technical. I mean, if someone's charter rights have been violated in the context of an investigation and a charge, you know, in my mind, that person at least is entitled to an acquittal because the charter means what it says and the police shouldn't be violating their rights. But then, of course, there's a, a segment of that uh, group of people, too, who are just simply factually innocent. And uh, and I've acted for individuals who were charged and they, they just simply didn't commit the offense. There was some kind of mistake that occurred. And the Court of Appeals concern is that, well, even though that's a minority of the people that are charged, still... You know, the government can't pressure those people into pleading guilty just to save a few bucks in the the, the administration of criminal justice. Right. And so we have to be concerned, even if it's only a minority of people who are charged who are actually not guilty, we have to be concerned about them as well. Well, that's the thing. Regardless of what the criminal charge is, if, if an accused is convinced that the state has overwhelming evidence, then maybe it's in that person's best interest to reach a deal. But, the, but that's that's up to the accused, isn't it? Right. I mean, no question. And, and the... Uh, you know, the great majority of people, or at least a large majority of the people who are charged, just simply go into court and plead guilty and, and uh, admit that they're guilty. And that, of course, is their right. And um, there's no reason to change the equation when it comes to people who make that decision. But the concern arises when you've got the people who are not guilty or who otherwise have valid defenses and and wish to uh, put the crown to the standard of proof that applies in criminal cases. And, and when those people, too, are coerced into pleading guilty, that's where we have a problem. All right. Well, as you say, then, it's in the province's uh, hands now, the decision whether to appeal? Yes. All right. Well, and if not, we'll, we'll see what, uh, what changes they make to the legislation. Nathan, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. Nathan Whitling, uh, defense attorney based in Edmonton, uh, represented those who had challenged the law successfully now today, as it turns out. But as he said, with a couple caveats, uh, because the province has been granted a one-year stay to either decide whether to appeal this or whether to go back and change the legislation. So as he says, they would probably be safe if they simply imposed a, a fixed period for a license suspension. Right, that if you blow 0.05 as it stands now, and this wasn't impacted by the court decision, and you can get a license suspension of a few days, or I think that that goes up, depending on, on the number of times you've been caught. I have to go back and, and check the details on that. So if they simply said, okay, and if it's 0.08, well, then it's a three-month suspension. And that's that. They would probably be safe. The problem here is that the suspension is tied directly to the criminal case. So if you decide you're going to go to trial and it gets delayed and it gets delayed and it gets delayed, and that's the reality uh, given the, the problems with our court system right now, that suspension sticks with you. Now, again, remember there was the case, uh, for example, of, of Peter Goldring, former Edmonton member of parliament who was charged with refusing to blow. Now, eventually that case got to trial and he was found not guilty because he was maintaining that he was prepared to provide a breath sample, but was simply asking the police officer for some clarification as to what exactly was, was happening. The police officer believed that he was resisting, and uh, they criminally charged him. So it was December of 2011, the night in question, when Goldring was pulled over. It was June of 2013 when he was finally found not guilty. So there you go. I mean, that gives you an idea of the timeline. He believed firmly that he was innocent, that he had not done anything wrong, and was vindicated ultimately by the judge. 
The judge said at the time, the questions Mr. Goldring was asking do not suggest he was just buying time. He was in a dilemma. The questions were basically those that one might expect a detainee would ask a lawyer if that option were available. Uh, Goldring's lawyer argued that the officers had botched the arrest, refused to answer his client's reasonable questions. Okay, so this is not just simply a case then of, of drunk people trying to get off on a technicality here. Right, I mean, this gets back to how are these cases handled? And if the police do botch a situation like that, and somebody's just asking a couple of reasonable questions, why have you pulled me over? What's happening here? Why are you asking me to blow? Can you explain this to me? That it's not unreasonable that police answer those questions. And to simply say, ah, you're asking questions, you're stalling, slap the cuffs on him, he's refusing to blow. You know, as this case showed, that that's, that's an insufficient response. It's an inadequate response from police. And the case may fall apart. So the Crown stuck with it. Mr. Goldring was acquitted. Right, so it speaks to the problem inherent in the system. That in a situation like that, you'd have your license suspended the entire time. And when you're ultimately acquitted, I guess you get it back, but it doesn't undo the hardship that came along with that. So you can see how it's problematic. And it is obviously meant to be a way of intimidating someone into resolving their case. You really want to try your luck at a trial? You really want to be stuck without a license for maybe a year or more? That seems pretty clear that that was the intent, was to put pressure on people to not go to trial. And so the court has said you can't do that. So we'll see what happens next. The province can either change the law they can appeal it to the Supreme Court. 403-974-8255 is our number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.